Well, thank you, worship team, for your ministry with us today. And uh, what great truth we have just sung. I will rejoice. I will declare God is my victory and he is here. Singing that, we're declaring that God is present here in our lives to help us achieve victory over our selfish attitudes. And we all need this, don't we? We all need his help. And I want to begin this half of the message today actually here with a confession, a, a personal confession. Because sometimes you have to know I have an attitude. I do. Just ask my wife. There have been many times she said to me, no, I just don't like your attitude right now. And there are many things that happen in life that cause me sometimes to have bad attitude. Interrupted plans, disobedient children, an unexpected bill, a breakdown of one of our cars, completed home project that just didn't turn out right, uncooperative, stubborn people, uh, an anticipated time for recreation snatched away by some sudden need. And, and sometimes things like this, when they happen, they cause me to have bad attitude. And since I know this is true for myself, I have to believe it's probably true for most, if not all of you as well. Because truth be told, we all have an attitude problem. We do. Now, that problem looks differently from person to person, to be sure, but we all have it. And what we're doing here today is addressing some of the most common attitude problems in the church and explaining how to fight against them in pursuit of a loosely gripped life. Because bad attitudes, they all come from a self-focused lifestyle which says, I know what's best. I need to be in control. I must have this to be happy. And the result of all this is a life where we hold on to things tightly rather than releasing them to the sovereignty of God. And I'm thankful for my brother Gary for how he has challenged us with the attitudes of bitterness and complaining. But now I'd like to continue with a few more. Here's the first. Not covetousness, but contentment. Not covetousness, but contentment. Now, covetousness is the desire for stuff, for personal gain. It is the yearning for certain things or accomplishments or experiences, relationships. It's the eager desire for something. Now, to covet something is not always bad. We often say around here many times, you know, I would really covet your prayers about that. Or I covet the faithfulness of my spouse. And we know these, these desires here, they're good and they're right. And so in this sense, when we covet something, it means that we really treasure them, that we greatly value it. But an attitude of covetousness is different. An attitude of it is an intense desire within us. When we say to ourselves, I must have that thing. It's not just a valuing or an appreciating of something. It is an envious yearning, an aching for something that we do not have. And it is a, a genuine sense of emptiness that we might feel inside saying, I, I need this thing to be satisfied. And there are many ways that an attitude of covetousness is manifest today. We covet money so that when that unexpected bill shows up and you have this new expense, you begin to feel unhappy about it. Or we track our bank accounts and our investment statements, and we so eagerly yearn to see a rise in value. And when we see a loss, we become dismayed, we become troubled. We covet money, we covet stuff. We become covetous about having, you know, a nicer home or a new car or a new TV, new computer, iPad. A new fishing pole, sewing machine, set of golf clubs, new wardrobe, whatever. And this is especially true when we compare ourselves to others. People have things that are bigger or better or nicer than we have. And we look on their stuff with envy. 
with covetousness. We covet stuff. We covet vacations and other fun experiences. And we see other people taking trips to Hawaii or the Bahamas or Disney World. You know, we enviously desire that for ourselves. We covet so many other things, including relationships, career advancement, good grades, having the perfect lawn, the most beautiful children, even ministry accomplishments. And this attitude of covetous means that when we finally get these things that we pursue, we grip them tightly. And we hold on to them in such a way so that we never have to let go of them because we have worked so hard and invested so much in chasing after them in the first place. And this attitude of covetousness, it makes it impossible to approach life with a loose grip. And it also leads to much pain. Hear what First Timothy says in chapter 6, verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this graving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of stuff and money and all that money can do for you produces pain and personal ruin. Why? Because when the love of these things that consumes us so much, what happens is we end up working too hard or we neglect important relationships too much or our identity becomes tied up in these things far too deep and we inflict so much unnecessary pain upon ourselves as we toil and strive to get that thing. And covetousness also leads to pain because when we lose our grip on these things and we will lose them, we become depressed and discouraged because we invested so much in the pursuit of them and now all of a sudden they're gone. It's painful. And covetousness also produces pain because it keeps us investing in things that are so worthwhile and satisfying like our family, our marriage, friends, your children, your relationship with God. Covetousness always ultimately leads to pain. And that is why instead of covetousness, we must pursue contentment. Now, contentment is a humble acceptance of your present circumstances. It is a, it is a feeling of peace. An opening of your hands to God and saying to him, whatever I have is yours. And whatever I don't have, that's fine. Whatever I have is yours and the things I don't have that I want, it's okay. And contentment is not the same as happiness. You can be sad and still be content. You can be hurt and still be content. You can have regret about not having something in your life and still be content. Because what contentment says, it says, what I have, it might not be perfect, but it is enough. In this world, it is seemingly impossible to be content. Everything around us, it cries out and tells us that we need to be consumed with the want for more. And this is the whole premise of capitalism, that companies work to convince us of our need for their product or their service. And TV advertisements and marketing propaganda, they all have one agenda. And that is to stir up a covetous attitude within us. And so how do we fight against this attitude? How do we live a life of open-handed contentment? I think there's two things, two key important things that we can do to pursue contentment in our life. Two key things. And here's the first. Believe that God is sufficient. Believe that God is sufficient. Hebrews 13.5. 
It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Bible exhorts us to be content with whatever we have. And why can we do so? What's the secret? What's the reason why we can be content with what you have? The, the answer is right here. It says, because God has said he will never leave us or forsake us. So contentment happens when we know that God is with us no matter what. But why is that true? Why is God's presence in our life the secret to contentment? I'd answer that by asking you this. What's better? A bigger, nicer home or the infinite love of God. What's better? What's better, a nice uh, new car or a new wardrobe or a new life of hope and joy that God provides in Jesus Christ? What's better? A sunny vacation to an exotic place with the ever-present Holy Spirit in your life to comfort and empower you. What's better? The promotion at work that you have always wanted? Or the status of being a treasured and righteous heir of the eternal king. What's better? The financial security you have always dreamed about? Or the eternal security that comes to the precious blood of Jesus Christ? What could possibly be better? Do you see the point? Everything in this world, it pales in comparison to God. And while the things in this world, they come and they go, God never does. And so because God is greater than the world, and because he does not leave us, he is always with us, God is sufficient for all of our needs. Believe in God's sufficiency, and you will find contentment. That's the first key. The second is this, keep perspective. Keep perspective. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. Now there is great pain, great gain in godliness with contentment. If we brought nothing into the world and we can take, cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Much of what Paul is saying here is that we go, the stuff stays. We come into the world. We don't have anything. We come into the world and then we get lots of stuff. And then we leave the world and the stuff stays behind. So in the end, none of the stuff will matter. We're going to be separated from it at some point. That's an inevitability. And all that extra stuff, that those luxuries of life, don't worry about them. They don't last. Keep perspective. Realize how temporary and how fleeting their pleasures really are. Because your hand, it will be pried open at some point. And you will give up those things. Whether you want to or not. So be content with losing those things. Even better, be content with not having them in the first place. Keep them in perspective. Don't make them out to be more than they really are. And Bethel, realize, we need to realize that probably what you really have, what you, what you really need, actually, is, is probably far less than what you actually have. Do you get that? What you, what you really need is probably far less than what you actually have. My wife Jessica and I have kind of a little running joke about this truth that any time we find ourselves struggling with complaining or a lack of contentment, sometimes we say, well, we could be living in a dirt-floored hut in Africa. And when you think about how 80 to 90 percent of the world gets along just fine with 90 percent less stuff than we have, you gain some perspective, which makes you more thankful for what you have and more content in your present circumstances. 
So don't compare yourself with people who have more. Compare yourself with people who have less, much, much less. And in that you will find contentment. First Timothy 6, 6 also contains a very exciting formula that we need to consider. Paul writes, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. And that phrase, there's actually like a little mathematic formula, a little equation. And here it is. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. Godliness in addition to contentment produces great gain. Now who here wants great gain? We all want great gain, don't we? In fact, that sounds pretty good. And actually that is exactly what a covetous attitude is pursuing in the first place. Great gain. But notice how Paul says we achieve that great gain. It's not through striving or working or covetousness. It's through first godliness and then contentment. Godliness, which is the righteousness and the holiness of our life. And contentment, which is the ability to say, what I have is enough. And when these two things come together, there's a marriage of these two things, godliness and contentment. Paul says they produce great gain. Why is that? I suggest to you because I think godliness, righteousness, holiness, it limits our suffering. Because when we don't sin as much, we don't cause ourselves as much self-inflicted pain. It produces an easier life. And contentment, contentment limits our heartache. Because when we're content, we're at peace. And so these two things, godliness and contentment, when they come together, you know what it produces? It produces a life of greater ease and greater peace. And that is great gain. And ironically, that's exactly what covetousness is pursuing anyways. By the accumulation of stuff or experiences or status, it's trying to produce a life that is easier and more peaceful. But in the end, it actually results in pain. So let us pursue Not covetousness, but contentment. Godliness and contentment. That will lead us to great gain. We have one more attitude to consider, and that's this. Not fear, but faith. Not fear, but faith. Now, we all experience fear, don't we? It comes in all sorts of forms and for many understandable reasons. We have fears relating to our employment or our financial security. And recently, many of you here have lost jobs or have faced the very real potential of being unemployed. And all this produces fear within us as we wonder, will I ever be able to find work? Will I be able to make make ends meet? Will I be able to keep the house? How will my carefully laid plans for the future need to change? And when our employment and our finances become uncertain, we often respond with fear. Another common way that we become fearful is in regards to our health. Now, if your health is good, you usually don't have many fears about it. But if your health is fading, or if you've gone to the doctor and you get some scary news, like uh, a lump was found there, or a test result showed something strange here, or your body is not acting as it should, something seems wrong, an attitude of fear often creeps in and gets a hold of our hearts, doesn't it? And this is especially true when a loved one, a parent, spouse, a child enters into health crisis and you begin to fear, could I actually be in danger of losing this person? And what would I do if I did? Undoubtedly, many of you are in this place right now in your own life or in someone else's life that's close to you. And there is a genuine sense of fear. 
Terrible health crises often do that. And if you're a parent, you often have fears about your children. You ask questions like, will they turn out all right? Will they be successful in life? Will they find a good spouse? Will they love God and walk faithfully with him? You have fears for their future. You have fears for your own future. Sometimes we have fears for our nation's future. Pastor Gary has already spoken about the anxiety and fear that some of us feel about our collective future. A recent poll concluded that 8 out of 10 Americans don't trust the federal government or think it can solve our problems. Sometimes quite the opposite. And And it seems that we are at a point in history where there is an unparalleled amount of fear about the future of our nation. And these concerns are just some of the pressures that cause us to have an attitude of fear. But like covetousness, an attitude of fear keeps us from opening our hands to the Lord and surrendering our lives to him. Because when we get frightened, what's the first thing we do? Our instinctive reaction is to grip onto things tighter. Men, if you've ever watched a scary movie with your spouse or girlfriend, you know this. Because you're sitting there, you're watching that scary movie, and then what happens? All of a sudden, the monster jumps out. Blah! And what does she do? She doesn't just lay back and like, well, that's a cool special effect. Now she like grabs onto you and all of a sudden you got this tourniquet on your arm and you never knew how strong this woman could be. Why? Because she's reacting out of fear. When scared, what do we do? We try to grasp onto things as tightly as we can. We seek security. We try desperately to find an element of control. Something to give us peace. And that initial reaction, while understandable, it becomes a problem when it is a pervasive attitude in our lives. An attitude where we're constantly looking and grasping for something to hold on to. A consuming attitude of fear. It overwhelms us with anxiety and nervousness. It paralyzes us. Makes it hard for us to act. It drives us into depression and despair. An attitude of fear. It makes it very difficult to believe that anything good can come from this trial or point of suffering our life. And an attitude of fear. It is not pleasant. It produces much pain when we're constantly grasping, searching for things to hold on to because an attitude of fear, it ultimately produces no confidence, no hope, no peace in our lives. And at its core, an attitude of fear questions the very goodness and love of God. As we say to ourselves, God, how, how, why could you let this thing happen to me? Instead of this attitude of fear, we need to embrace a spirit of faith. Hebrews defines faith for us like this in chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith is a confident belief in the promises of God. It is assurance that God is who he says he is and that God will do what he says he will do. It is the opposite of fear, which says, I can't trust God in this. I I, I can't have any confidence that in the end that that this is going to work out okay. I would suggest to you that having a spirit of fear instead of faith rests on really two things, two keys to having a spirit of faith, an attitude of faith. The first is this. Acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Consider these two passages. Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And Romans 8, 28. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Did you notice in these two passages, the two little words that are central to both? It's the words, all things. 
All things. God works all things according to his will and his purposes. All things. So these passages teach that God is in sovereign control of whatever circumstances, trials, hardships, challenges we face. Both big and small, significant or seemingly insignificant. God is in control of everything that happens in your life and in mine. And this truth should calm our hearts. It should quench our fears. It should grow our faith. But this truth alone is not enough to eradicate our fear. Because what if God doesn't know what he's doing? What if he has some kind of malicious, cruel intent in his control? And these concerns are reasons for the second key we have to have to pursuing a life of faith rather than fear. And that's this. Trust in the wisdom and goodness of God. Trust in the wisdom and goodness of God. Here's a long passage spoken by Christ explaining why our lives should not have an attitude of fear. He says in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Look at the birds of the air. They neither soar nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the fields, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So what is Jesus' argument here? He's saying that you should not be anxious and fearful about your life. Because just as God knows what the birds and the plants need, and he provides for their needs, so too will he provide for your needs. Jesus is saying that God is wise and that he is good. He knows exactly what his people need. He is wise. And he provides his people with those needs. He is good. And Jesus' point here, simply put, is that God is for us. He's working towards good purposes, even when we can't see it. He's taking care of us, even when it doesn't feel like it. And even when the world says, there is no good in this, you should despair and be afraid. We should say with confidence, I know God is in control. I know that he is good and wise. And even though yet I can't yet understand why all of this is happening, I can trust him. I do not need to be afraid. I choose to believe that my God is for me. And as often as we quote it, we should really believe Romans 8, 28, which says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And we respond in faith, as Paul exhorts us to do in Philippians 4, or 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We take our inclinations of fear and we cast those fears before him. And we lean on the certain knowledge of God's sovereignty and his wisdom and his goodness. And in that truth, we find hope. We find peace. And the peace of Christ 
guards our hearts, guards our minds. So by believing in the sovereignty, wisdom, and goodness of God, we can, we can conquer our fears. Now, we still may be concerned, deeply concerned about our future, and this is understandable, but we can approach that future with an open hand. We can approach our fear just like Jesus, who in the Garden of Gethsemane, amid great, great sorrow and anguish about the fate that was before him, he had the faith to say, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And because of that faith, Jesus did not give in to his fear, but rather he opened his hands and trusted in the sovereignty, wisdom, and goodness of God. Oh, that we would do the same. And not hold on to any of these attitudes of bitterness or complaining or covetousness or fear. That we would cast these off and instead put on a spirit of forgiveness, and thankfulness, contentment, and faith. And by doing so, we surrender ourselves to God and we stop living in rebellion against him. We must trust his sovereignty, wisdom, and goodness completely. So that we can truly say, what I have is enough. What I don't have, it is okay. You are sufficient. Not my will, but yours be done. And to live in this way, it is the essence of holding our lives with an open hand. Surrendering to God's purposes. Submitting to God's will. And when we approach life in this way, we will find great joy. Great peace. Great gain. Amen.